It's really nice to be uh, with you this morning. little visual aid for you in case anybody didn't quite catch that. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? A little jar of honey. Does that just, can't you just imagine that on your toast in the morning? Every time you eat a slice of toast, it'll remind you to pray for brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted. You know, there's a story that his Jewish rabbis used to dip the scrolls, the scriptures that they were trying to teach to their students, they dip the end of the scroll into a honeycomb and then just put it on the lips of the, the, the kids that were trying to learn it as a kind of, you know, sweeter than the honeycomb is the words that God has spoken to us as his people. And when we think in this morning a little bit just about persecution and those that are suffering around the world, it's worth remembering actually that we have a hope and a purpose and something that's worth suffering and struggling for. Why do our brothers and sisters put up with the kind of persecution that they do around the world and still remain faithful? Because our God is sovereign over all. He's able and actually the rewards of belonging to him outweigh anything that the struggle might present us with. So let's think about struggling a little bit this morning. Let's think about John. Let's think about counting the cost. Let's think about a costly encounter that John went through. And I'm going to be really... (laughs) Never say this as a youth pastor. I'm going to be fairly short this morning. No, the fairly short, that means, that is in general, kind of... I'm trying, I'm trying, okay. Because around the world this morning, as we've already heard, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of our brothers and sisters facing opposition and persecution for their faith. Their homes, their jobs, their families, their very lives are under threat simply for being disciples of Jesus and followers of the way. They're the ones that the writer of the Hebrews speaks about when he says... There were these others who were tortured, refusing to release, be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. And some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground, the writer of Hebrews tells us. They're the ones, and still are the ones, who have to meet in secret, if at all, who've got no freedom to worship, who risk life and limb just to put Jesus first in their private lives, let alone their public ones. The world is not worthy of them. So here in the UK in the 21st century, still largely protected from the persecution that many of our brothers and sisters face on a daily basis. We've got religious freedoms and luxury to gather in in the way that we have this morning. Look around you at this building. It's fab, isn't it? Look around at your brothers and sisters gathered in this building this morning. Isn't it great? Even while we're thinking about those that are suffering around the world, isn't it fantastic? To be in a place of freedom like we have. We've got our own premises. 
We share in this, we've got the right to openly proclaim the truth that we've come to know, a privileged position within our society, and despite what many of us might feel to the contrary due to the erosion of much of our Christian heritage and values, our right to our voice and the freedom to say what we believe is currently still fairly protected, isn't it? We live in a time of luxury. I'd like to suggest to you, though, that that very religious freedom that we're afforded comes with its own pitfalls and problems a little bit, if we're not careful. Because just like anything else that we take for granted in life, when something's consistently available and normal to us, there's a danger that we start to get overly sensitive to any sense of restriction or inconvenience or infringement of our perceived rights. And when we've never known anything like organised state-imposed opposition, there's a danger that we begin to perceive everything, uh, every contrary viewpoint and every judgement against us, and every argument as as some kind of persecution. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us we should be those that consider Jesus' struggles when we're thinking about those that were persecuted. And he reminds us that in our struggle against sin, we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. Anybody got beaten up for being a Christian lately? No. Thought not. Doesn't happen. So, um, However, despite that fact, it doesn't of course diminish the very real emotional and social struggles that come from trying to be those that shine like stars in this warped and crooked generation. As Philippians says to us, as a youth pastor, I know full well what it is to try and stand up for truth and declare yourself a Christian in school and college in this day and age. And I've personally known the impact of being singled out for my own Christian faith in the workplace, and I'm sure that many of you have as well. On top of this comes the challenging truth that, of course, once you declare yourself a Christian... Lots of people think that they know exactly what that means and tar you with every negative perception that they've ever had about what you think, what you believe, what you stand for, your attitudes to things in life. And of course, once you declare yourself a Christian, doesn't everyone else in the world know exactly how you should act and behave, despite the fact that they don't adopt the same values for themselves? And the truth is this this morning, actually, that whatever societal tolerance we live under, following Jesus and owning his name will always have consequences. In Luke 14, Jesus reminded uh, his followers that they should be ready to count the cost of being a disciple. They should be ready for whatever opposition comes their way. So we're going to take a little bit of time this morning, just a little bit of time, he keeps promising, to consider the life of John the Baptist as someone who paid the ultimate price for his calling and see if there's anything that we can learn personally and individually as well as corporately this morning from counting the cost and enduring opposition from his life. So let's just go back to the passage that we heard read this morning and think again about what got John to the point of losing his head in the first place. So you'll remember uh, that Mark 1 verse 4 tells us, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so that's how John got started, by 
doing what it says on the tin by being the baptizer and preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But more specifically what got John to lose in his head, he preached to Herod's sin, calling him personally to repent. What was the sin that John called Herod out on? Those of you that know the story will know that on a a little um, meeting up with his half-brother, uh, John, uh, Herod decided that, uh, that his, his brother's wife was far more attractive than his own wife, um, went home, divorced his own wife, and then took John's wife as his. And John called him out on it. Uh, if you heard in that passage read this morning, it's against the law for you to do this. What John's referring to, of course, is God's law. The scriptures, the law that says that this is not something that Herod should have been doing and God through John calls Herod to account because as someone who's leading his people he should be somebody who's setting the level of morality for society his behaviour leads to the acceptance and the tolerance of all kinds of behaviours and the rejection of the law of Moses is going to have a knock on impact for what's generally considered acceptable behaviour so there's a whole host of stuff we could talk about Herod. I really wanted to do this. If, if you don't know much about him, do a little, just do a little Google, do a little study on him and Herodias, his wife, and Salome, her daughter, and see what you come up with. But I'm just going to keep it simple and think about a few lessons from John's life. And just thinking about that, I want to suggest, here's the first thing that John needed to do and that we can learn from his life. So lesson one, never be afraid to take a moral stand. If we're looking to follow Jesus and our lives, our lifestyles should be set an example to others. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they might see the good deeds that you do and glorify your Father in heaven. And it's true, isn't it? If we don't look any different to anybody else, If our behaviours and our lifestyles don't stand out, why should anybody ever listen to anything we've got to say? The world's full of hypocrites, have you noticed that? State one thing but do something else. You know, if we want people to listen to us, it's no good just speaking the truth. We've got to live it out, act it out as well in everything that we do. But if we are living a godly life, we shouldn't be afraid to speak out against sin when we see it. Now, I wouldn't suggest that you go around preaching hellfire and damnation on everybody that you're working with. It tends to kind of work against what you're trying to do. And it's a sure way of riling up opposition against you, going and pointing out everybody else's sin to them. And in fact, 1 Peter 3 tells us that we should be sharing the hope that we've got in Jesus with gentleness and respect. But our lives should be the kind of lives that other people look at and take notice of. And the light of our lives should be able to to shine on other people in such a way that our very behaviours illuminate the difference and the sin that may be in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the fact that Scripture talks about Herod both feared John and protected him. Because he knew him to be a righteous and a holy man. There was something about John's life that spoke to Herod, 
caused Herod discomfort, awkwardness. It, it provoked him. It, it was puzzling to him. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, the scripture says. You ever had that? I don't get it. But yet he liked to listen to him. I'd like to suggest to us this morning that people should look at our lives and maybe not like the things we've got to say, not like the truth that we've got to proclaim, not get what it is that we're on about, not understand how Jesus was raised from the dead. And yet somehow there's a truth in the words that we speak that's strangely attractive to other people. Have you ever had that experience? People don't seem to get what it is that you're on about, but they like to listen to you. I know from my own experience in the past that there have been people who've come to me and they've gone, I wish I had got a faith like you have. There should be something that's attractive to other people, even if it confuses them about the way that we live. Second point I'm going to whiz now. Don't try and fit in, lovely people of God. You were meant to stand out. Yeah. John was not a people person. Has anybody noticed this? John was not a people person. He was not your trendy, popular evangelist. He lived an aesthetic lifestyle. He's away from society. His sense of fashion is entirely questionable, unless camel hair is back in now. His dietary choices are downright odd, and his interpersonal skills were out the window. You brood of vipers is not the best opening line for a conversation to win over friends and influence people. You know, we're living in a world obsessed with popularity and fitting in, and there's a danger in progressive church that we're striving so much to be culturally relevant, where fresh expressions are springing up all over the place, and when it's hard to tell the difference sometimes between a worship event and a rock concert, We've got to be the ones that still keep the main thing the main thing. It's got to be about Jesus. Yeah. It's entirely good and it's entirely right. You need to hear me on this one. That every generation works to keep the truth of the gospel as accessible as it can be. And it learns the language of the culture that it's speaking into. But let's be those whose hearts always speak into the culture not those that let themselves get moulded to what the culture expects to see Hmm. lesson three your heavenly standing before God is no guarantee of your earthly success in fact it's far more likely that the more spiritually significant you are the more opposition and persecution that you're going to face in your life. Was that true of John? Let's. John was part of God's plan of salvation from ages past. Yeah? He was always in God's thinking. Jesus was always in God's thinking. God's thinking, how am I going to introduce Jesus? Before the foundation of the world? Maybe? Probably. He's spoken of by prophets 750 years before he's born. So he's so significant that God gives a heads up to those people that are listening and goes, hey, there's going to be a voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
make straight paths for the Lord. His arrival gets um, heralded by an angelic visitation. Anybody else's birth done in that way? No, didn't think so. He's born to a barren old couple that everybody thinks can't have children because this is God's time. And I tell you what, we'll wait until she's way past the chance of having kids. And then, let's just make a point by, yeah, letting her get pregnant. And his life's laid out by God's ordaining from the start to the finish. You've got to call him John. That's his name. There's no one in your family called John. But by the way, his guy's name, it's John. Uh, No razors on his head, ever. No wine past his lips, ever. He's the voice of one calling in the wilderness. This is what John's going to do. Jesus said of John himself, amongst all of those that were called by God the Father, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. No one. No one ever greater than John the Baptist. And still, doing what he was asked to do, got his head cut off for him. By the way, do you know you're greater than John the Baptist? Kind of have a sneaky sideways look at somebody. The person sitting next to you on either direction is greater than John the Baptist. The least in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is greater than John was. More significant, more important, more of a bearer of truth and a pointer to Jesus than John was. That's you and me this morning. Okay, here we go. Next point. John knew that God's plans are more important than your place in them. You know, knowing your giftings and what your calling is can be really helpful in determining where you're meant to serve in the body of Christ. We've got the second vision Sunday coming up next week. Are you looking forward to that? I am. Yeah. And very much we want to be thinking, what's the part I play in this new vision? If we're going to see lives transformed by the presence and compassion of Jesus amongst us, what's my part to play? How do I fit in this vision for this little bit of Christ's body in the coming? It's really important that we ask ourselves that question. But the emphasis on knowing your ministry and your gifts, your calling, should always be on knowing where we can serve in the kingdom of God best and not about whether I actually have a significant ministry that other people can see. I don't know whether you've noticed, but there's been a real shift in culture towards the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, where this culture of, of the popular speaker, the upfront character, the significant church leader, the rise of celebrity worship leaders within the life of the church has become a thing in a way I don't know that it ever was before. But John knew this, that actually your significance and success in heaven's economy is always based on your obedience and your willingness to serve wherever you are. And if your gift is leading, you lead in order to serve the people that you lead in. So if you think your ministry is toilet cleaning, hallelujah, (laughs) just do it well. Yeah? If your ministry is leading... Don't spend your entire life cleaning toilets. It kind of works against the ministry and the gifting that God's given you. But approach 
You're leading, you're teaching, you're shepherding, you're pastoring of other people with the same effort and gusto that you would if you were scrubbing a loo. Do it with all your heart and to the best of your ability. John, with all of his pedigree, knew that after me will come one, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. He must increase. I must decrease. And when everyone else, as we heard in that passage before, thought John might be one of the prophets from old, even Elijah, maybe John's the Messiah, he's like, nope. And pointed to Jesus, which leads me to my final point, possibly. (laughs) Point to Jesus and then count the cost. Look, said John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When everyone else was coming to him, when everyone else was going, hey, is he the man? Is this guy the man? He goes, nope. Look, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Our job is to never figure out what our own significance might be. It's to point to his. Yeah? Our job is never to figure out what our own significance is. It's to point to Jesus. I don't know about you, I've come across plenty of evangelists who feel that they're being persecuted for sharing the gospel without realising that the gospel of Jesus is not you're all sinners and you're going to burn in hell if you don't behave better. Um, When was the last time that you heard a street preacher preaching the love of God and captivating the crowd with that message and invitation that welcomed them into a hope and a better future? We don't tend to do that enough. Turn or burn, as the old shirt used to say, is not the gospel. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, Jesus himself said, but to save it. However, you can call out sin without condemning the sinner. So in all of our conversations, in all of our thinkings, let's remember it's one thing to be persecuted for pointing to Jesus. It's another to be facing opposition just for being jerks. Yeah. But the world still needs to hear the truth of Jesus' words. It does need to hear God's perspective on life. And it needs to hear hear the call to eternal life in Jesus. It needs to hear the call of God to repentance. But of course, true repentance isn't feeling guilty for the stuff that you've done, which is what we've made it so often. It's a change of thinking, which leads to a change of heart. And it needs to hear the words of God's love, that God's speaking to us, and the words of hope for a better way through Jesus. The world needs to hear of God's kindness that leads to repentance. And sometimes that might mean that it's appropriate to give a bit of rebuke or correction. But what it doesn't need us to do is constantly be telling other people off to behave better. Or or being threatened with punishment for not being good enough. So when we're pointing to Jesus, let's make sure we're, we're pointing to the real Jesus. When a woman's caught in adultery and thrown down at its feet... 
finds a way of rescuing her from the condemnation and the persecution of everybody else that's around them. That goes, yeah, go and sin no more. Change the way that you're thinking. Change the way that you're doing things. But actually, no one else condemn you. I don't condemn you either. Just make sure we point into the real Jesus who came into the world to save it, to rescue it, not to condemn it. So, in conclusion, I promise. I just want to remind us that pointing to Jesus can and often will lead to opposition because as Jesus warned us, the world hates you guys, keep in mind it hated me first. You think you've got a monopoly on being disliked for your beliefs? And convictions, no. Jesus went on to say, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If it doesn't love you, you don't belong to the world. You belong to me because I've chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, he said, the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They'll treat you this way because of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. Back to that. Herod didn't understand him. He was confusing. He didn't get what God was like. Luke 6, Jesus said to us, Blessed are you when people hate you. Are you facing any opposition at all for your convictions at the moment? Blessed are you, says Jesus. I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'm for you. Blessed are you when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice, guys, in that day and leap for joy, manifest, bouncing, rejoicing, because great is your reward in heaven. That's how they treated your ancestors, the prophets. So let's remember this morning. Any time that we're facing any kind of opposition or exclusion or we're misunderstood or we're mistreated because of Jesus, we're in good company, guys. We're in company with all of those down through history that have preached the truth of who God is and what he's like. And Jesus calls us friends, brothers and sisters, and calls us to be part of what he's doing. We're in good company with Christ himself. So if the world shouts you down, always remember, heaven's cheering you on. Let's pray. Lord, we want to confess to you this morning our awareness of the truth that in this country, in this nation, in this building, in this place, on this day, few of us have the slightest idea what it's like to live in fear of just being found out as belonging to you. And Lord, our hearts and our prayer this morning is for those that we've heard about today, those 360 million brothers and sisters around the world who can't do what we're doing today. So Lord, help our hearts to go out to them. 
And Lord, when we feel mistreated or misjudged or misunderstood, Lord, help us to keep it in perspective, we pray. But Lord, help us to rise up against um, all those voices that would speak against you. Lord, help us to point the way, point to the way, the one who is the way, the truth and the life, by everything that we say and everything that we do. Lord, let us be those whose light so shines before men that they'll see the good that we do and praise you, our Father in heaven. Lord, whenever we face opposition, especially when we face opposition, may our lives reflect your truth, your glory. And Lord, help us to remember that always you are rooting for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.